Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the third week of our Squiggly Career Stories on the Squiggly Careers podcast. <laughs> I mean, that's enough squiggly for anyone, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely getting a lot better at saying the word squiggly. Yeah. Um, though actually, I did think when we recorded our audio book for the squiggly career, two words that I really struggled with were the word squiggly and the word success. <laughs> I, really, I really stumbled over that quite a lot. Um, so yes, it's the third week of Squiggly Career Stories, which also means it's the third week of kind of all things book, all things the squiggly career. So what has been your favourite moment of the week, Sarah, in relation to the book coming out? I don't know if it was my favourite moment, it was certainly my no- most nerve-wracking moment, which was going on the Chris Evans radio show on Monday. I used to watch TFI growing up, so you know, and Big Breakfast, and you know, you just think, this is really surreal. I was a bag of nerves, and actually my favourite moment was how lovely he was. Mm. So not, I think we did okay, I'd love to know if you listen to it, um, let, let us know what you think. I really enjoyed talking about the book, but actually he was incredibly supportive. He'd clearly read the book. He was really interested. And so I think that almost surprised and delighted me. I think I came away from that thinking, oh, that's so nice to know that somebody like Chris Evans, who's so credible and brilliant, he doesn't have to read our book or be that interested. And he really was. You know, he put on a Squiggly Careers t-shirt. It made me really happy. I just love chatting to him. So I think for something that I was so anxious about... I think he made the whole experience a really positive one. And then I think we were better as a result. I think I can't... That was probably my favourite moment, but I don't want to steal it. So my second favourite moment um, was actually... We shared a picture of that on LinkedIn with everybody. And I thought it was so lovely. How many comments of people just going... Basically, I really support you. I love what you do. I either heard you and thought it was good or I'm really supportive of a squiggly career or now I've heard about this idea of a squiggly career, it makes me feel a bit better about my career. And it just made me feel like... Obviously, there's lots of shiny moments when you launch a book, but actually there's some really meaningful things behind it when you connect to new people, and I think it's giving us that opportunity as well. So that was my, yeah. my second... Do you want to hear about a less shiny moment? Go on. In case everyone's just thinking, oh, they're so, you know, they're doing all this Chris Evans stuff. Yeah. Today, genuinely, I was coming out of a car park thinking about work, and you know, you like one of those circular ones where you're coming down to the bottom. I drove around the same level three times <laughs> before I realised I was just driving around the same level and not actually going down. And I was thinking, oh, it's interesting. Like I'm trying to be really credible in this area and going to do all these big things, but I can't get out of a car park. I'm stuck <laughs> in a car park in Reading. So if anyone's thinking, oh, you know, they've got all this sorted, it's like I was like laughing to myself and thinking, I can't get out of a car park. 
I've also ended up with a really bad cold this week, so I in know. case I sound really nasally, yeah, there are highs and lows. And <laughs> in case you're listening to this podcast for the first time and you're thinking, what are they talking about? I thought I was here for some kind career. of career inspiration <laughs> and advice. And this is a it's squiggly, coming. It's, it's coming. coming. It is. It is a squiggly careers podcast. And ordinarily, every week, it's Sarah and I talking to each other about different kind of career conundrums or things that we know that can help people in our career. Or sometimes we invite guests on to talk about it. So that is sort of normal service for the Squiggly Careers podcast. We're just doing a bit of a takeover where we're really diving into people's squiggly career stories, the highs, the lows, all the insights, all the learning, all the people that have helped them. So that it's a bit of inspiration for all of us. So that is kind of what you're going to hear shortly. But before we talk about the two people's stories that we're going to focus on today, um, Sarah has some actionable career things for you. I do. So I was just reflecting on since the start of January, how many people have been chatting to me about top of mind for them is what's next. Mm -hmm. Everybody's saying to me, I'm just thinking about what's next. It's not like they're necessarily hating their jobs or thinking they want to move jobs right now. But it's often that time of year, isn't it, where you've reflected a bit and you think, I do want to be a bit more proactive now in terms of exploring what's next. So if that is you and you're listening now and you just want to know where to start, because I think that's often the thing. If you're being quite open-minded and quite broad around that, it can feel quite daunting because you just think, I know I want to think about something next, but I'm just not sure where to start. So we've gone with three Ps to make it hopefully memorable um, in terms of how you might start to answer that what next question, kind of where to start. So the first one is, what are you passionate about? So think about the things that give you energy. And if you're not sure what those things might be, perhaps over the next week, at the end of every day, just jot down the one thing that day where you felt like you were kind of most in flow, you got the most energy, you just sort of were enjoying it. It could even be just a 10 minute moment of just you thinking, when have I been at my best today or this week? And start to spot those kind of passions. Because sometimes, you know, if you're thinking about what next, or maybe you're struggling a bit in your role at the moment, you think, oh, I don't know, I don't know what I'm passionate about. And if you don't know, just start to spot them. Just start to look out for those moments where, um, you know, you just feel like I did a good job there. I just really enjoyed that. So when you've started to think about what you're passionate about, then number two is think about how that translates into possibilities. So one of the things that we always encourage people to think about in terms of their careers is not to worry too much about definitive plans because things are changing so frequently and fluidly. It's very hard to commit to a plan and feel in control of a plan because everything kind of changes. If you have a kind of exploring possibilities mindset, that means looking at multiple things, being open to kind of exploring different opportunities. And the way to start, I think, with possibilities is perhaps think about one career possibility that's quite close to what you do today. Perhaps it's a more obvious possibility. Think about another possibility that's more ambitious. Perhaps you know you'd like to do it, but you insert a but. Mm -hmm. So, you know, oh, I'd love to do that job, but dot 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 what is that possibility kind of allow yourself to think about that as a potential reality and then continuing on the p theme what's a pivot possibility so if you were going to do something slightly different perhaps move to a different industry perhaps a different type of work you know perhaps you're thinking this is a year where one of my what next might be to go freelance or might be you know you're running your own thing and you think perhaps i'd like to go back into an organization so it could also be about kind of how you're working as well as kind of what you're working on And when you've written down some of those possibilities, I think then often you can think, right, what am I meant to do with them now? Think about two things. What do I need to know? So what are the gaps in my knowledge and who can help me? 
perhaps don't judge too much what the knowledge people have got because I think often it's really surprising that once you start to share these possibilities with people who you know someone will know someone I think we've probably both found that in our careers where you sort of mentioned that you're quite interested in exploring what it might be like to work in this industry or work in this way and inevitably someone's like oh well my brother's sister does that or someone I worked with previously could maybe help and then each time you have one of these exploring curious career conversations ask that person who else do you think I should chat to see if there's anyone else that they can recommend and then that just helps you to kind of get dive even deeper but just start just start with one or two possibilities think about what you need to know and kind of who can help you and then the final one is think about three people who you've worked with in the past who you could have a what next conversation with So these could be previous colleagues, managers, mentors. It doesn't always have to be people more senior than you, but just three people who you know would probably be quite open to a bit of a chat in return for a coffee or over Skype. And you only need to spend half an hour with those people. My one bit of advice for those conversations is try and prepare for those conversations a little bit so that those people know how they can help you. In our experience, people really like helping people. That's how we kind of define networking, people helping people. But if you turn up and you're too general or a bit too abstract, you've perhaps not thought some stuff through for yourself, people are not sure what you're asking of them. So help people to help you by maybe going to have a chat about, I've got these two or three possibilities in mind. I'm just starting to explore them. I just wanted to get your point of view on them. I just wondered if you knew anyone who you thought might be able to help. Have just maybe two or three questions prepared for those conversations so that they can be as useful to you um, as possible. And then finally, three podcasts that we would recommend that can also help you answer the question of what next. Just things that we love, that we listen to, that we both find helpful. The first one, which is quite a new discovery for me, is the Creative Rebels podcast with David and Adam. They're about a year into their podcast now. They've had some brilliant guests, um, some really interesting guests, some that I've heard of, some that I hadn't. So perhaps check that out. Uh, the second one is Control Out Delete, which is Emma Gannon's podcast. I know lots of you listening perhaps will know Emma's podcast. She must have done like 200, 250 episodes, I think now. So lots to choose from. And she's also really interesting in terms of how she's designed her career and really thought about what next. So I think both she's useful and her guests are. And then the final one is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, which I think is a longtime favourite of both of ours. A guy called Bruce Daisley, and he both has a really interesting perspective, I think, on work generally himself. He's written a brilliant book called The Joy of Work. And his guests are, I would say, real in-depth experts and kind of specialists in their areas, whether it's talking about how you can make work better, how to make brilliant decisions. Uh, we were actually on his podcast this week, was it this week? Yes. But I'd say his podcast is just a really good way of kind of reflecting on the type of work that you want to be doing, how you want to spend your time. So let us know if you enjoy those. And actually, if you have any other podcast recommendations um, that you think would help people to answer that what next question, please let us know because we'd love to share them with our listeners. You can just find us on Instagram at Amazing If, just direct messages or comment on the podcast when this one comes out and we'll share them with all of our community because I think we've discovered those through people recommending them to other people. So it's always good to get a new recommendation. So on to this week's squiggly career stories then. So we've got two stories for you. The first one is going to be from Caroline Casey, who is the founder of the Valuable 500 and someone that Sarah interviewed. So Sarah, what's your kind of sort of takeouts from that conversation? I don't think you're meant to have favourites, but I think it might have been my favourite interview. Um, I'm not sure how the other guests will feel about that. But I think it was my favourite because 
of how vulnerable and brave Caroline is in telling her story and how passionate she is. She just brings an incredible amount of energy to the interview. She's actually not someone I know really well. She's someone I've sort of been at a few events with her. Um, I knew a little bit about her story. But within about an hour, I felt like we were best friends. You know, I mean, she also turns up in like a purple fur coat, fake fur to be clear. And she's just got so much kind of life about her. She's definitely had a squiggly career. So she's just fascinating, super smart, really interesting, but also is very prepared to talk about the tough stuff and her kind of own experiences. I think we're probably very different people with very different personalities, but I just felt like we really clicked and it was just a brilliant um, and really kind of heartfelt experience. Oh, what a nice memory to have from doing squiggly career stories. And then I go on to speak to Polly McMaster and Polly is the founder of a brand that I love called The Fold. You do love that brand. I do. It's a beautiful clothing brand that um, it's not just about beautiful clothes though, it's about how, how it empowers women. But Polly's career story is so interesting. Like she's got a PhD in virology, which I still need to work out what that what is. What does that mean? Do we not know? I was like, what does that mean? Oh, I no. still need to research this. Um, but she's also, she's kind of done management consultancy and she started her business while she was kind of started a side project and took an idea forward and her stories about uh, mentors and career transitions and sort of these very big different things that she's done in her career I found it really really interesting and do you know what she's just a really lovely person oh. I first met Polly because I think I reached out to her when I was at Microsoft and I said something like you're really inspiring can we have a coffee and she's <laughs> like okay uh, so maybe don't everybody message her okay she's got a deluge of coffees but yeah. I really like those people who sometimes say yes you catch them at the right time or with the right email or the right message and they say yes and that's where that conversation and that network um, kind of relationship started. So hopefully you will find these interesting, inspiring, you'll find some uh, little nuggets that you can take out and apply to your own career. But we're going to start off with Sarah's conversation with Caroline Casey. Hi Caroline. Hi Jeff. I can't wait to talk to Caroline today. She is somebody who I came across, I think, about two or three years ago on stage and I heard her story for the first time and I know she perhaps will feel a bit uncomfortable with this word, but it did make me feel really inspired. And it also made me just open up my eyes, I think, to some areas that maybe I wasn't as knowledgeable about. I felt like I was learning from her and then started to follow her journey and our lives started to interweave a little bit. She has contributed her best piece of career advice to the squiggly career. But just to get to know Caroline, we're going to start off with some quick fire questions because there is so much to learn that I want to delve straight in. And actually, this first one, you are the first guest where I know the answer to this question because I've watched your TED talk along with about 2 million other people. But perhaps for our listeners, in case they haven't seen your TED Talk, when you were young, what did you want to be when you were kind of were growing up? What was the end of that sentence? I wanted to be Mowgli from the Jungle Book. Yep. I wanted to be a cowgirl. And I wanted to race cars and motorbikes. All of those dreams are about being free. Mm. And anybody who has been in my company over the last 18 months has probably seen me wearing a denim jacket with sequin sparkly wings. You do seem to have a lot of sparkles everywhere <laughs> you go. There's a lot of sparkliness. <laughs> yeah, well, I like to say that I'm a, I'm a passionate commitment to freedom, the magic of possibility and love, I guess. And that's <laughs> my soft stuff. But I think they were all about being free. And I think that's the work that I do. I, I really want everybody to be able to be free to belong as who they are. So if you were to use one word to describe your career so far, what would you go for? 
It's hard. Unexpected. <gasps> Unexpected. Oh, that is good. That is squiggly. So if you were giving yourself a mark out of 10 for your squiggliness, what do you think? 10. Are, are you a 10? I'm a 10 out of 10. You are first 10. You are first I 10. I am 100% squiggly you, at my you core. Are. Talk to us about one person across your career so far who has really inspired you and kind of why or supported you. I can't, I feel so bad. This is such a Caroline <laughs> thing because if I choose one, I'll hurt somebody else. Oh, no, you won't. You'll choose one person who at a particular moment was particularly useful. I think I've had loads of mentors and sponsors throughout my career. Who, like you, if you said to me, have you got a best one? I think that's a different question. I think really all we're interested in is just in a particular moment. You know, someone gives you something sometimes in a moment where you really need it. Like I had a moment where I was finding my maternity leave particularly tough and a previous boss wrote me a letter. And in that moment, she gave me exactly what I needed to feel good about myself, feel like it was okay to feel how I was feeling. So I don't go, oh, she's better than anyone else and there's been loads of people. But in that moment, she did do something really special. I know you'll have had a lot of those. I'm very lucky. I have a huge amount of love in my life and a lot of very special relationships. But as you're speaking, I'm going to come, I'm going to say the one that's come to my mind. In May of 2018, I was going to take the main stage of an event called the Festival of Media. Mm. And it was the time I was trying to put together the value of 500. Yeah. And I was very nervous. Uh, I was tired. I was missing my dad. My dad had passed away unexpectedly in 2016. It was in Rome, you know, when it was beautiful. But we crossed a road, my husband and I, because he was there with me. It's very unusual that he would travel with me. Right. And he said, come across the road. I said, I've seen something in a window I want you to look at. And in the window was the denim jacket with the sparkly wings. Oh, and that's that moment. And it sounds really cliched, but in that moment, I really felt seen by Gar. His name is Gar. And the thing that I've loved about Gar is he's the only one who really knows and sees me. But he wants me to fly. He totally wants me to fly and can see probably where I can go when I can't. And when we went in, and the jacket only cost 30 euro, like it was a really <laughs> cheap jacket I wore for quite a time. It's everything that I needed, not just for that moment and that day that I went on the stage, but actually for the time of the Valuable 500. And every time I put it on, I feel one wing is my father and one wing is Gar. That's amazing. And actually you do, we'll come back to it because I think people will find it really interesting because I think you've even said in some of your TED Talks and things that I've watched about you, you do present very confidently, as in you're an excellent public speaker, you're full of life, you're really vivacious. So even people, I think, hearing that you get nervous oh, yeah. is, is actually get, really helpful. I am a terrified public speaker. Also, people think I'm an extrovert as well. Mm -hmm. I'm very, very private. I'm very shy. I blush very quickly. <laughs> Me too. Um, <laughs> but I adore people. I love connection. I love people. I love love. And I, and I get energised mm -hmm. by people. But often when I have a role to play. So if you gave me a choice, I would far prefer to sit opposite you and have a great conversation than go to a party. <laughs> that today you've got said, to do both, yeah, haven't you? <laughs> but then, that being said, I love a dance floor. I've grown up very unsure of myself. I think a lot of my work that I've done over the last two decades is proving that I am good enough mm -hmm. and I am lovable and I am worth something. But people don't see that in me. They see the force of nature pushing mm. for the work I do. And that's very different. I'm actually a very big squidgy heart. <laughs> yeah.
So let's talk a bit about that work, because I think lots of people won't be familiar with the Valuable 500. So just explain to people kind of what that is, and then we'll talk a bit about how that came into life. Well, the Valuable 500 uh, was launched at the World Economic Forum this year, which is one of the most premier platforms in the world for yes. business leaders. Whether you like it or not, it is. Yeah. It's in the snow. And very credible. Uh, yes, it kind of puts a credibility badge mm. Paul Pomanen is our chairperson and he's the ex-CEO yeah. of Unilever. And we've three strategic partners, Virgin Media. Oh, I've always loved the Virgin brand mm-hmm. because it's Rebel. We love Virgin. Yeah. My co-founder worked for Virgin. Well, I'm, I love the <laughs> Challenger brand. And Omnicom, which is the biggest yes, uh, media yeah, agency yeah. in the world, and One Young World. And with this group of individuals, we launched the Valuable 500, whose ambition, it's very simple, to put disability equally on the global business leadership agenda by getting 500 of the world's most influential brands and their CEOs to commit to having a board or a leadership conversation and make committed action. So we call it an inclusion revolution. And <laughs> if we were to achieve it in 2019, we go back and report to in Davos mm-hmm. in 2020. And then we will go from revolution to evolution. And how do we evolve leadership and disability? And how does that differ to where you started? So when you first started your career... What were you doing? What were you spending your time doing? And then we'll talk about how different that is to maybe what you do now. Career. You asked me at the beginning what I wanted to be when I was younger. I mean, I was 17 and people were filling out their forms for university. (laughs) I was like, "Eh, no, I'm going to become Oakley from the Jungle Book. I'm going to travel. (laughs) Anyway, arguments abound in our house and my parents won. And I started my career as an archaeologist. Mm. And so what your listeners don't know is that's, quite ridiculous because yes. <laughs> um, at 17 on my 17th birthday I was to discover that I have a rare condition called ocular albinism and I'm registered blind which means that if you were to wear glasses and put Vaseline over them that's my sight. Right? I had gone to a normal school I never knew that I was different to any other child and that was on purpose because that's how my parents brought me up. Yeah. So when I discovered that this sight issue I think that's probably why they didn't want to let me go travelling. So I went to college and I thought, well, the, near, the nearest thing to being an adventure was archaeology. Basically, did you want to be Indiana Jones? Yeah, but absolutely <laughs> wanted to be Indiana Jones. And I wanted to be outside running around. But I didn't really think about whether that was an intelligent or smart move because I'm so gut instinct and so spontaneous. You know, I never plan anything. And I also went into college not telling anybody that I was visually impaired because I disowned the disability. I disowned the label at 17. When I got it, I went, nope, nothing to do with me. And I spent 11 years just doing what I wanted to do. And I did archaeology. How could you see? Yeah, I know. I didn't see. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I did in my own little way, but I wanted to excavate. Right. So when you're excavating, when I read, my nose touches the page, right? So can you imagine, like, I'm like a little turtle. Scrabbling around. Yeah, it's dreadful. Anyway, so I was gently told that maybe my career wouldn't be in archaeology. (laughs) I went travelling around the world for a year. Like, I then became a a qualified masseuse. I don't know, I have a really good feeling around bodies and energy. And I had been a dancer too, so I loved the idea of that. And kind of set up my own first business. I've always been slightly entrepreneurial. My father was an entrepreneur. But then kind of got bored and then I thought, well, I need to be outside again. So I became a horticulturist and a landscape gardener. Right. Equally ridiculous. When also you can't quite see visual. Very visual. 
there's a stubborn streak in me or denial. I'm never sure which. Realised that I couldn't see enough to do the way I wanted to do things enough. So the pictures in my head were not matching what I was doing <laughs> on the ground. So I went back to business school and I converted to go do a master's. That led me to working for Accenture as a management consultant. And I didn't tell them about being registered blind either. So how was that? I mean, Accenture consulting... My impression, and certainly the friends I've got who kind of work in that world, that is full-on attention to detail work, things that are quite high pressure, quite high yeah. stress. It may be different now, but certainly you imagine that kind of work hard, play hard sort of environment. And I'm trying to imagine that on top of also having something that they don't know that makes life more difficult for you. <laughs> I believe it's still work hard, play hard. And look, I'm an A-type personality. Um, it's got nothing to do with my disability. I... I give everything full throttle. That's yeah. just me. But I didn't, it didn't catch up with me until probably been 18 months. And I was high performing. Oh, because, oh, to fail would be, oh, <laughs> well, Caroline Casey can't fail. And I've been brought up to be this very strong, Yeah, I'm doing kind of air inverted commas, whatever that is. And I thought to ask for help would be giving in. Mm. And I've been quoting Maya Angelou a lot. But she would have said, you know, there's no greater agony than an untold story inside you. And I think that's what happened to me. Yeah. I was just so exhausted being somebody that I wasn't. And I didn't know what to do because I couldn't see another me anywhere. I mean, yeah. And I was just like, where are we? You know, I just couldn't see it. And so I just didn't know what to do. And my parents had brought me up being particularly my father, you know, we were truckers. Cases are truckers. You know, the reason he didn't tell me about my vision impairment because Johnny Cash's song, A Boy Named Sue. I mean, I don't need to say more. So, <laughs> you know, it really was just exhaustion that had me come out of the closet 20 years ago in October. Wow. Mm -hmm. And then what was the reaction? So when you were brave enough or stressed enough to feel like you finally had to do something, as in tell people or, or share that kind of revelation with people, how did people respond? Well, it wasn't a, ta like, ta-da, ta -da. I'm out of the closet. <laughs> da -da -da -da. There wasn't a soundtrack for, we were <laughs> all having a dance. <laughs> yeah, woohoo. It wasn't like that at all. It was, oh, it was horrible, actually. Hmm. Tell me more about that. What made it so horrible? Oh, like, the game was up. The fraud was stripped bare. I'm very well known for saying you're defined by nothing, not one moment, not one love, not one role, not one failure, not one success. I think I've I used to say that because I need to convince myself of that, too. And also because of that inflection point of sitting in front of somebody from HR and saying, I can't see you and I need help. Whoa, I need help. Like that was not on my cards. Like, no. Now, I, I was already quite different. Within Accenture, I was wearing these spat docks, like, you know, everybody else wears heels <laughs> and I was wearing spat docks and I wouldn't wear a pair of earrings. So, so there was a real little push against me. There was a, The rebel has yeah. always been in there, you know. That being said, it came and I wasn't prepared and I didn't know. By the way, it was my HR person was the first person. Mm -hmm. But you must remember, I, it wasn't a massive declaration to the rest of the world. You know what I mean? It was just this slow unraveling. Do you know something? I think I nearly have to come out every day because I don't look visually impaired. You see me walk in and 
you don't instantly think, oh, Caroline happens to have a visual impairment because my white cane is folded up in my bag before I come and see you. Yeah. Because I have usable vision, the process of coming out nearly happens every day where I have to explain why I look so stupid standing looking at a wall, <laughs> you know. So it was hard, and but it was definitely one of the most defining moments of my life. It's when I look back on it now, I just wish I had done it sooner. Mm. Talk to me about elephants and the role that elephants have played in your life, which is not a question I've asked before on this podcast. (laughs) You might not be surprised to know. Do you know, I bet you so many of your listeners love elephants. (laughs) How he doesn't live an elephant, Yeah, I know. You'd be surprised. Oh, really? But I'm also having a a kind of recent passion for giraffes. (laughs) um, Yeah, giraffes are fab, though. Um, No, elephants was just a thing. I I was given a little elephant when I was three, and it was disgusting, actually. It was an orange sponge, and I called her Ellie. I mean, hello. Original. Oh, so original. <laughs> and I just loved them. And Jungle Book was the thing. I mean, there's no doubt. I saw Mowgli hanging out with, you know, Bagheera and Baloo and the elephants. And I just had this image I feel in like you'd mind. be quite happy in the jungle with oh, all the animals. Oh, yeah, for sure. And when I went <laughs> travelling around the world that first time when I was 21, you know, I saw my first elephant in Thailand that I could go touch, not mm-hmm. in a zoo. And I was like, oh, whoa, this is just... I mean, I can't explain it. My heart just... It just broke open. And I remember seeing this elephant in Thailand going, one day, one day, I'm going to go and have an adventure with an elephant. 21. Anyway, so let's scoot on to coming out of the closet. So I come out of the closet at 28 years old. Accenture sent me to an eye specialist because all they want to know how to do is how do we help her? They weren't trying to be bad. They were just, they needed guidance because I obviously had no answers. And it it was the conversation I had with that eye doctor who said, I think you need to take some time off work. You've lost some of your vision temporarily and we just need for you to heal. And why don't you go and have an adventure? Why don't you go and do something different? That day, the idea of being Mowgli from the Jungle Book seemed like the most amazing thing that I could do in the world. And How I decided to do that was to sort of replicate Mark Shan's book called Travels of My Elephant. But of course, I didn't want to be Mark Shan. I wanted to be better than Mark (laughs) Shan. And the decision on that day in March of 2000 led me to my very own elephant odyssey, which began on the 13th of January 2001 with Mark Shan's backing, let me tell you. And I went across India southern India, a thousand kilometres, four and a half months on an elephant. And I became the first Western female to become a mahout, an elephant handler. Wow. Yes. I mean, it's not typical. So you want squiggly? Yeah. Yeah, squiggly. (laughs) You know, from management consultant to elephant handler. Yeah, that's squiggly. So where do you go from there? You think... Right, well, I have been an archaeologist, designed some gardens, worked as an Accenture, got my own elephant. At that moment, and I guess that was a critical moment because you had understood about your visual impairment, you'd gone off and taken some space, at some point, I guess, decided that you couldn't be an elephant handler forever. What came after that? There's a few sliding door moments in my life. And the first one came when I came off the elephant because, obviously an Irish visually impaired blonde girl doing this adventure with National Geographic covering it. You know, I mean, that's a thing. (laughs) And listen, I am in my soul an adventurer. And I was offered lots of opportunity to do more adventures. And I could have done adventures and speak and do all of Mm -hmm. those things and write books, okay? 
let's be honest, I did another adventure quite soon called Around the World in 80 Ways after I'd done that. And there's nothing that my heart wanted more than to have a lifetime of adventures and stories. My gosh, you're the only person that I've said this to. But there was this other thing that I, that chose me, which was, but what about disability? What about the fact that I discriminated against disability? I didn't own my own. And that I am one of 1.3 billion people in the world. And I learned the scale of the inequality and I just was like, oh my gosh, I, I can't ignore that. And then the third path was Accenture were going, oh my God, you are a great fundraiser. <laughs> You're a great little treasure. You come back. So I had adventure, storyteller, writer of books, come back to Accenture for a great career and you can go out and do sales and all that. Or you can take on one of the most misunderstood issues of our time, the greatest miscommunication of our time, which is disability and try and fix it. And you know what? I don't remember choosing. <laughs> I just remember knowing that I had to do it. And I remember knowing that business was going to be the vehicle or the way that I was mm -hmm. going to try and make that happen. And you know what? I've never been asked that question before and I've never expressed it. And I'm sitting here going 20 years later, I don't remember consciously choosing it. I just, it chose me. So if people listening are, we were talking before about disability and some of the challenges around empathising, understanding, it's not particularly well understood, it's not talked about lots within organisations. There's some organisations I think do some brilliant work. I worked in Sainsbury's uh, as we were doing all the Paralympics for the first time and I think even just being part of a company where we chose to sponsor the Paralympics and not the Olympics and that was our focus and working with Channel 4, yes it was one example but certainly I learned a lot and I loved that Superhumans campaign and I just thought that was good in terms of kind of general awareness and championing and support for people and just seeing those people as incredible athletes first yeah. and kind of having a disability second. And I do think people get worried about saying the wrong thing or just kind of not knowing. If people want to understand more about disability and, and what they can do to support and help within their organisations, where should people start? Because I think it's one of those, it's not talked about as much as some other areas like gender, which actually I think is talked about a lot now. And it's not hard to find information or resources or things to go and listen to or podcasts specific to gender, all those kind of things. I don't see the same in disability, but that's perhaps because I just don't know where to go or where those things are. There's so many things I, I want to say in response to that. Well, the Valuable 500 exists because disability is on the edges of business. Mm. And that's the misconception that we don't have value. The 1.3 billion people in the world are 1.3 billion suppliers and customers and talent yeah. and members of community. Yeah. And with a mum and a dad, that's 53% of our consumer base. That's one in six of us. That's not niche, yeah. you know. So the question is, what is disability and how to understand it? Mm -hmm. Actually, everybody knows somebody who has a disability. Yeah. Yeah. Because disability is under the UN Convention, that's physical and sensory and mental health and learning and some of the very difficult diseases people acquire. Also, 80% of disability is invisible. Yeah. And well, that's in 80%? 80. Wow, that's and, loads higher than yeah. I thought. And 80% of disability is acquired between the ages of 18 and 64, mm -hmm. which is another big thing we don't know. But forget all that for a second every single one of us is going to have a disability at some point. And I find it so interesting that we say those people, them. Mm. 
It's not them. It's it us. Is. Yeah. A disability is just part of the human condition. And most of us in this space operate on a societal model, which means the disability is one thing, but the world is not designed for us, designed for the different way we turn up. Because if it was, it wouldn't be so difficult, right? Because the yeah. world's designed for all of our difference. It really wouldn't be. And how can we remove those barriers to allow people equally thrive? So to the resources of how and where you can go, actually, now it's more about opening your eyes because finally there's this great zeitgeist moment that's happening. Yeah. And you know what? With the power of social media, we're hearing yeah. and seeing the voices of people with a different lived experience than yes. your own. Netflix have just put disability content in for the saw. first time. Yeah. So we're starting to see more of the reality of the human experience in our advertising and in our programming. Okay, okay, it's tiny, but it's starting. So but that's it wasn't happening. there, at least it is. Yeah, it's it. really happening. And Netflix haven't done it because, well, it's a worthy thing to do. They see that it's about representation of mm. And actually society. I saw... Um, M&S have done some clothes that are yes. particularly easy. I think it is maybe to get on. Adaptable and clothing. Adaptable. Yeah. And if you put the ageing market and the disability market together, that's huge. But the disability market alone is worth eight trillion. So come back to Sainsbury's. They were one of our very first for the valuable 500. Tim Fallowfield was a yeah, great leader in that. Him. Yeah. In the world of retail, even though it's under huge threat to online shopping, the retailers are more likely to chase the 400,000 vegans than the 13 million people with 249 billion spending power. And that just shows the disconnect, which yeah. that's what we're trying to challenge and that's what we're trying to say. I also think some of the representation of disability, whether it's about, oh, you're so inspiring or <laughs> it's so awful or the representation of people with disabilities in film or is they have to be this inspiring model or the freak or the criminal. So where's just the normalisation? And that's just beginning and I'm really excited about it. And I guess what the Valuable 500 is here to do is to take disability from the sidelines Inclusion and diversity mainly is about gender and race and finally LGBTQ plus, right? Yeah. But I have a huge problem with any company claiming they're passionate about inclusion and yet they're leaving out disability. Mm. 90% of the brands in the world say they are. But only 4% consider disability. So as far as I'm concerned, that's a delusion. That's an inclusion delusion. So I kind of want to <laughs> open up... It rhymes. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm just like, I, I, what I really want, if when business sees the value, then society sees the value because business is the most powerful force on the planet. And so if a leader makes a choice, that choice creates change or that choice creates culture. So what we're trying to do is get leaders to see that. So see the value and let it penetrate through the organisation. Let's normalise this. Let's not make this another category. I'm tired of us pitting humanity against each other with this identity politics because all it says to me is every single one of us is so yearning to belong and to be seen and heard as we are. Look, the reason people like Brené Brown or yeah. Tony Robbins or all of those people are so successful is because people are searching for their home inside themselves. You don't need to have a disability to experience otherness or fear of exclusion. Actually, sometimes I think my greatest sense of exclusion is I unfortunately am not a mom, and I've been called childless and people making assumptions about what that is. And I'm like... Wow, mm. that feels more hard for me than the vision. I see that, yeah. And we talk to a lot of our guests about how they think about success for themselves and encouraging people to really consider what does success look like to me rather than thinking what should success be based on what my parents thought or what my friends think or what my manager's telling me it should look like. 
And I feel like you're somebody who, certainly over the course of your career, has probably redefined success lots of different times. Sometimes you've gone into things and then thought, I thought this was going to be successful, but then actually this is maybe not me. When you're now thinking about success in your attempt, your own happiness during a year, how do you think about that? Because you've got these incredibly ambitious targets and campaign that you're trying to drive which inevitably will always be really hard so do you look at those numbers and think well that's what I sort of assign my success to do you think more about am I enjoying what I'm doing day to day am I doing the things I love to do am I building really good connections you talked about how much you like to build really strong relationships what does success look like for you now generally a few things one is I married for the second time Gar who bought me the jacket yes I am in a wonderfully happy, healthy marriage and a relationship. It doesn't have to be a marriage because we only got married quite recently. I think that's amazing. (laughs) It's amazing. I think I'm amazing. And, you know, we, I think we're amazing. We worked at that. We've committed to that. It's phenomenal. So I I feel safe at home. I feel me. And I I do the same for him. So I think that's the thing I am genuinely most proud of it. Of all the things, I am really proud of my relationship with Gar and my family and my friends. I love people in my life. That is successful for me. Yeah. But success in the terms of success, I'm. we're in a world full of jealousy and comparison and scarcity. Meaning if you're successful, I can't be successful. If I give my life to you, I won't have light for myself. If you win the lottery, I won't, you know. I hate that. Yeah. I hate it so much. And yet I fall to that too. Because sometimes as I've grown through my career, I will compare my outputs and think, okay, well, that would be successful. Okay, that's really successful. I did it that way. <laughs> so no, I'm not there anymore. I've learned how to manage my green eyed monster in the terms of, you know, I wish we could get more funding for this or whatever else. I do therapy, by the way, and it's really healthy. And I think that's a very successful part of my life. I dip in and out of it now. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really healthy for me. My greatest success is the fact it's not whether we got to the 500 for the Mm -hmm. valuable 500. Is that we look at whatever figure it is and we think we are magnificent. And I really feel that. I'm not just saying that. And you can feel it. You can feel the energy of me saying that. And the big success for me is about really understanding why I do what I do. It's not what you do, but it's why you do it. And I think in the earlier part of my career, as I was saying before, I did the work because I wanted to prove that I was worth something, that I was okay, that I was lovable. Now, I think I'm okay. I quite like who I've grown into the woman that I am. I mean, I've got lots of feelings, but I... <laughs> but he doesn't. I, exactly. But I, I feel that's a real success. I, I've never been a victim to anything. And I have a very difficult past that I don't speak about and I choose not to. It's not the story I need to share. I feel very proud of living my life through that. I also have to say my greatest success is I do not listen to the reels. I walk around in my crazy outfits. <laughs> When everybody else is in suits and whatever and I'm walking around doing my crazy stuff and I choose to dance when there's music and I haven't lost that gorgeous phosphorus squiggliness that you have. It's That's so in have your, your energy. I you still, have yeah, your but you have it too. You can see it. And I love that. And I, that's success. If I lose that, then no. I'm a little easier on myself. Thank God. I'm a little kinder to myself. That's successful. It is. I think, you know, I've won a lot of accolades and blah, blah, blahs. 
Yeah, no, that's the world saying thank you. And I deeply, deeply appreciate the recognition. I really do. But the success is knowing that I've done the very best that I can with what I have. And for all of our listeners, what piece of career advice would you pass on to them? Either something that you've been told that's really stuck with you or just something that you want to leave people with as kind of the final part of your story for today? Well, you see, I can't ever do one. No, you don't like being forced into one, do you? (laughs) You're very reluctant as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to do... the rebel in you, you see? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Well, there's three, really. One is the one I've talked about throughout this conversation. You're not defined by anything. Get a second chance, a third chance every day, every morning, every minute, every moment. Number two is never, ever, 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 ever ignore your gut instinct and your own intuition. Mm -hmm. Never. And the third one I'm going to leave with Maya Angelou. So she says it's a version of this is people may forget what you've said or how you look, but they will never forget how you make them feel. And in our careers professionally, you might think it's about how many followers or likes or your bank balance or your role, but it's not. It's the relationships that you build, the tribe that's around you, hands in the back, the backs to which you put your hands on. It's the people. The most proud moments of my life are when people say, I left your company feeling better about myself. And that makes me feel pretty good. Well, I think if you, I'm just thinking now as I was listening to you talk, how you made me feel. And I think it is an unusual combination actually of incredibly fun and uplifted, but also thoughtful and considered so that's sort of how I go away from this conversation feeling that if there's anyone who I want to be doing what you're doing it's you and I'm so glad it is you because you're very humble about you know anyone can do it and everybody's important and that is true but I do think we need people who are prepared to be the pioneers to be being the rebels and going out there and doing that and I find that incredibly motivating to see those people and that kind of drive and ambition And you're super fun and you have purple wings. But also I feel like I've learned so much from our conversation. So Caroline Casey, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much, Miss Squiggle. (laughs) Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hopefully you enjoyed listening to that. That was one of Sarah's favourite ones, so maybe it's one of your favourite ones too. We're now going to move on to my conversation with Polly McMaster from The Fold. Hello. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Very well, thank you. Um, Polly is the founder and CEO of an amazing company called The Fold. Beautiful women's wear. In fact, Polly, how would you describe The Fold? That's probably the better... We are a women's wear brand, but I think we like to think of ourselves as a brand that's dressing women to achieve their ambitions. So it's all about making them feel confident every day when they get up and celebrating what they wear to work so they actually feel good about it. I remember when I first came across the fold, I saw the product and I was like, this is gorgeous. But then I saw a statement about empowering women and that that was what the brand was about. And I think I was at Microsoft at the time and I was thinking, I need to get the fold into organisations to help everyone feel confident and empower them. Absolutely. Um, and I think that was the start of our conversation. And in the context of squiggly career stories, it was when we met and I started hearing about how the fold had become the fold and what had been before the fold that I realised that there might be a bit of a squiggly story behind your career and the fold. Definitely, yeah. So the obvious route to being the founder of your business would be that you had gone to fashion school or design and, and that was your background, but that's not quite where your your journey started. Exactly. I think it really is. I think it's almost like the definition of a squiggly career. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> it's truly gone in many different directions. I sometimes refer to it as almost sort of schizophrenic. <laughs> but when I, when I look back and I think about where I actually started, it maybe doesn't seem quite as random to me okay. as it sometimes does on the outside. So I suppose if we go all the way back to school, maybe mm-hmm. I've always been quite a generalist never particularly amazing at one thing, but always relatively good at quite a few different things. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in the UK education system, you get to A-levels and that poses quite a problem because you go, well, uh, I really don't know what to do because I could sort of do any of these things, but I'm not sure that I would do any one of them absolutely brilliantly. Yeah. I landed on science. Okay. But I threw in art on the side because I really loved art. And like I said, it was something that was really passionate about, but also couldn't sort of let go of. Yeah. And while I really loved it, and I think it was actually the creative part of it, obviously, but also... I was super interested in fashion, everything about fashion. I like was obsessed with magazines. I had like tear sheets from every magazine all over my wall. <laughs> I knew the name of every designer, every supermodel at the time, because obviously this is going back a, while, yeah. back a few years, back into that era. And it really was something I was pretty obsessed with. So I'd done my work experience at a couture house. I did after school sewing classes um, to learn how to make my own clothes because I'd made a deal with my mum that if I made my own clothes she'd help me to buy the fabric and the pattern from you know the haberdashery or whatever whereas she wouldn't give me that money to buy it from you know Topshop or whatever so I thought I was like well that's good isn't it then I can get the new (laughs) clothes but I do have to make them but fair enough that felt like a sort of decent trade-off because at least it was developing me yes so that was really where that whole sort of fashion piece sort of first came into it but in my heart of hearts, I really knew that I wasn't talented enough at art or that true creative side to actually do it as a proper job. I think I didn't really have the confidence in my ability. And I think that was probably good to be 
that self-aware because I think I would have found that that wasn't really the right path for me in the end. So instead, obviously, the um, the most adjacent <laughs> thing to that is science. Yes. <laughs> I always think of myself a bit left brain, right brain. Okay. So quite analytical, but also a bit creative. So a bit, you know, all, over, all over the show, mix. basically. Yeah. <laughs> sort of a good mix if you want to have a squiggly career. Yes, yeah. Um, so I went off and studied natural sciences. So everything from molecular cell biology to biochemistry really found a quite a nice niche in pathology, immunology, virology, okay. all the ologies. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite easy to remember. Um, yeah. And and I really loved it actually. I found it fascinating. The course was fantastic because it was quite diverse. So again, I was able to use my generalist skills and do lots of different things. I even stayed on and I did a PhD actually after my <laughs> after my degree. So I really dedicated quite a number of years to science. And what was the parental narrative at this time? Was it like, oh, so at 18, I was buying you fabric. And now we're like early 20s. And we've gone from Bunsen burners and lab coats. And now we're going to briefcases or whatever that we would, the stereotypical yeah. things that the consulting world are. Were they totally supportive? Like Polly, just keep exploring what you're great at and do what you love? Or were they thinking, these are some interesting moves? I think if they would thought I was genuinely sort of faffing yeah. and not doing anything productive, they probably would have had a bit more to say about that. But I guess because each of the steps, there was something quite sort of definitive and I was very focused on how I was going to achieve something and what I was going to do. It wasn't like I was floundering in the sense of not finding that thing. I always found something, the next thing that I was really passionate about mm. and then absolutely immersed myself in it. That's interesting. So the squiggliness made sense to people because you had a real clarity about the decisions that you were making. Yeah. It didn't matter that they were left field or whatever. There was a real clarity to, well, this is narrowing me down as a person and I, I thrive on being a generalist and therefore this is an opportunity which helps me to be even more of a generalist and, Ex exactly. and help me to keep learning. Okay. I think the other thing is that, so my, my dad actually worked in advertising and we moved around a lot when I was young. So we lived in Australia, we lived in America, we lived in London, so of before and after those various different moves and I think they were both very supportive about my sister and I becoming individuals and supporting our individual talents as mm. it were so for example with the discussion about the art at some point before I'd become very clear that I didn't want to do art I did sort of at least look at what would art school be like what would that path be like and I remember after I got into Cambridge for my natural sciences degree my dad said to me you know just because you got in and it's wonderful that that's what you want to do, but you do know that we would also have supported you if you wanted to go Aww. to art school. And I thought that was really open-minded, actually, because I think, you know, it's completely the opposite of that more like, oh, you must, you know, become a doctor or you must go to this best university, you must do that. Mm -hmm. And I think it was great that I had that sort of almost intellectual freedom. And I think, like I was just saying, I think it's, they knew that I would make something of it. I would do my best at it. I wasn't going to just let it go. I would, whatever it was that I was going to do, I would make the absolute best chance that I could of it. Mm. I think they really trusted that I would do that. It's really nice, that sense of trust, I think, because as individuals, we still look to parents for approval. It's kind of part of how we're yeah. wired. So if the approval comes from actually go explore, we'll support you in your decisions. I think that opens up a whole load of different options for you then yeah absolutely um, okay so we're going we're in consulting now we've kind of in there and what are you consulting on so actually at that point I did a lot of life sciences and biotech so yeah. that was where that thread really came together so instead of looking at it in the truly scientific sort of bench lab world it was going into this business world but learning about it in the context of a I suppose a 
an industry that I was at least familiar with in terms of the language. And actually, I worked at a company called LEK Consulting, and they had a life sciences practice. So it was really nice to be able to put that industry and sector knowledge to work mm-hmm. in the context of, of business and use that as my learning space. It was brilliant. It was absolutely full on. I mean, we worked extraordinarily long hours. We all had a huge amount of fun. It was mm-hmm. probably a bit like that kind of work hard, play hard time. And, you know, it wasn't unusual for us to be leaving the office at 3am and all the rest of it. So it was pretty full on. But it was absolutely the best training. I couldn't really have asked for more, actually, because I think not only did it give me a sense of how to work hard, and I mean the actual stamina of just cracking on to get it done until 3am if you need to. And I'm not saying that's always brilliant, but I think it really gave me a sense of if you want something and you're ambitious and you want to achieve it, you do have to work hard, actually, and you shouldn't shy away from hard work. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a really good learning, actually. And then obviously all the technical skills. So I mean, I do, even to this day, for example, feel very, very lucky to have had the exposure to how to build an amazing Excel model. Some of those things I sometimes take for granted. And I think actually, now that I'm running a team, how could we then go this training that I had? It's no wonder that I can put together an organized Mm. spreadsheet because I had that drilled into me for hours and hours and hours and hours. So if I want the team to also be able to have those skills, then we need to invest in that. So that's an interesting thing that we're sort of going through at the moment, but it's good to reflect back and go, wow, gosh, even though that was hard work, I was extremely lucky to have had that training and that exposure. So somewhere between 3am going home, we're working really hard, we're having a lot of fun, there was some sort of little idea that the fold, the fold was emerging at some point? Yeah, it was really interesting. In our year group, classic in consulting, there were four girls and 20 guys. Okay. So we were quite outnumbered. And I think it was the first time that I'd really started to think, oh, that's interesting. There aren't that many senior women around and there's only four of us in this rather large year group. So that thought was probably the first time that I'd really started to become aware of the idea of women in business and who are the role models that I'm looking to And what is it that I want out of my career? I actually have to say, I think we were quite lucky to be these four girls and these 20 guys because all of the partners, everyone in the business knew who each of us four girls were. And I think maybe the 20 guys sort of blended into a bit of a suited blur, (laughs) to be honest. I'm sure that's not true. But you can really see how we were very individual and it was much easier to figure out who four out four girls and remember our names. So that was quite funny. But it was also funny that on day one, we pretty much rocked up in the same suit. Okay. Because when we'd all gone shopping to try and find something to wear, you know, there weren't that many choices, really. It was miserable. And I was quite shocked because I was like, right, I've got this job. I've got to go in looking a bit like I know what I'm doing. And it was Siberia in terms of finding anything that I could even remotely afford, but which looked really smart. Yeah. And the guys were all sorted because they were wearing their suits but the girls we were like yeah you know what there's not a lot of choice actually Mm. and that was quite interesting so you had the kind of idea that although everyone turned up on day one in a very similar outfit and some little light bulb was going off yeah because I think we all enjoyed fashion and it was definitely this conundrum of how do we be ourselves and express ourselves but also show up to work in a way that we felt was really professional and I remember one of the partners gave a talk during our sort of professional development program about what we should be wearing but also he looked at the girls and he was like I'm really sorry, but I really have no idea 
what to say to you guys. So you'll just have to sort of figure it out. Figure oh, wow. it out. Oh wow! And actually, it was probably better that he didn't say anything yeah. because I'm not exactly sure what he would have come up with if he, if he'd tried. But that was where some of those little seeds, I suppose, were sown. And from Ellie Care, I went to work for a private equity firm called Apex Partners. And again, I was in the healthcare team, so that sort of business. Mm-hmm thread of taking that life sciences training I suppose through business that's where that was all coming together Mm -hmm. and I worked for a wonderful woman in Apex who dressed I think for the city quite flamboyantly I would say really brilliant very stylish she always wore you know little leopard print shoes she had a bright pink suit which was a real power suit but it was bright pink and I just thought good for you that is amazing and I really think it brought a lot of energy and charisma she was very charismatic into the meetings into the office every day and showed me as a more junior woman that it was absolutely fine to bring your personality into work and really own it Mm -hmm. and she was very entrepreneurial and very good at building a network and relationships and I think that was quite exciting to see someone and learn from that I really enjoyed that time actually working for her I found that very inspiring especially since almost all the other partners were men so I was very grateful that I got to work for a very strong woman who I could see was absolutely uh, you know a leader Mm. in the organization and so did you have like a business plan that you'd created was this like an idea that then became a business plan did you do it on the side whilst you were working or did you firmly stop and start something new in your squiggle I think in reality at Apex there was very little time or Mm. mental effort for anything really other than the work but what I did find really amazing about the work that I did there was the exposure I got to entrepreneurs. Ah. So often if we were going out and I, because I was the most junior member of the team, there were these legacy venture investments that they'd had when they used to invest in smaller, really true sort of biotech venture investing businesses. So I had quite a lot of responsibility to look after those and the follow on funding or various things that we needed to do. And that was the bit of the job that was absolutely by far my favourite part because they were the most incredible people they were super innovative they were doing all these amazing things and I got to meet them and I think the bit that was a bit of an eye-opener for me was that I always felt a little bit disappointed to go back to the office and be on the other side of the fence I felt a much more natural comfort and excitement and sort of commercial I suppose kinship with the people who I was meeting in the businesses Mm. than I did when I was working in the more sort of professional services or the investment side, where I really just felt more uncomfortable. I felt like we were asking different questions, but it wasn't where my true excitement lay. Mm. And at the end of the day, also working in private equity, it's a financial role. And I think I found that the commercial entrepreneurial side was really where my strengths lay, not on the finance side. So that was actually, again, a good observation to be going, you know what, those bits that I'm doing, I'm I'm not as good at it and I'm also not as excited by it and it's not really where my Mm. strengths are. And they actually suggested I go off to business school and they sponsored me to go to London Business School. So they really felt that it was an amazing opportunity for their younger team to go and go through that and then ideally come back. At the time, I was like, oh, God, I've studied for a PhD. (laughs) I'm like, am I ever going to not be a student? This is a bit ridiculous and a bit embarrassing, actually, how little work experience I actually have. That was actually an interesting moment because I I went for a meeting with this incredible woman who we'd randomly happened to live near. 
at some point when I was young, called Barbara Cassani. Okay, yes. And she's an incredible female role model in the world of business. And she had some super tough jobs during her career, one of which was starting Go Airlines through British Airways. So it's almost like being an entrepreneur, you know, when you start up something completely new. And that would have been an unbelievably challenging role. I mean, I really almost can't imagine getting your head around that. Very hard industry. I I know, I'll just start an airline. Yeah, Yeah, that'll be easy. (laughs) So... I'd been fortunate enough to sort of come across her. So I I messaged her and I said, you know, would you mind if we just go for a cup of coffee? I'd love to ask your advice because I really wanted to understand, like, is this a good investment of time to go off to business school for a couple of years, especially when I've already done lots of studying? And it just sort of felt like, oh, shouldn't I just be cracking on with it? And the thing that she said to me was, you've got to look much further ahead. It doesn't matter what's going to happen in three years' time or in five years' time. Let's face it, if you enjoy what you do, your career could be going on until you're, you know, 50, 60, 70. I Mm -hmm. mean, you know, 90, why not? Yep, yep. So to have such a short-term view of the horizon could be very limiting. And actually, it's unlikely that you would ever do an MBA and then look back and be like, oh, well, that was a real waste of time, where you might just crack on with your work, on the other hand, but then sort of never have that opportunity to take a step back and those years will blur together. So it's not like you would miss one of them, if Mm. you see what I mean. Really, although I had the opportunity to go back because I was being sponsored, I definitely felt in my mind and in my heart that this was my chance to take that step back. You know, we'd been working such long hours for years and years and years and to really go, right, okay, well, what is it that I'm actually enjoying about Mm. what it is that I do? And what am I good at? And where could I really put my passion? Because I know I'm a hard worker and I know I'm ambitious, but it was sort of that needs to be channeled into something that you can really enjoy sustainably for the long term, because otherwise you burn out and you don't feel excited and you don't feel motivated. And that's a real shame. Um, OK, so we're at we're at business school. We're doing the MBA. The fold's still in a little thing in the mind or has it become a physical thing at this point? Did you design something? Do you have a business plan? This was definitely the moment where it all came together okay so this exposure to these amazing business women the fact that I'd sort of parked this love of fashion and clothes and had also been struggling to find the ones that I wanted in this very corporate environment and that was definitely a theme that I'd felt all the way through that part of my career so far so at business school it was like wow you actually have a bit of headspace and I did all the entrepreneurial electives that I could because I was really fascinated by having met all these amazing people And I kept coming back to this thought about, oh, you know, why was it so difficult for me to find clothes that I liked? And I think because I was so interested in fashion, I was like, oh, maybe this is a chance to go and kind of do something about that. But then there was this business bit as well. So it was almost like these two massive themes coming together of going, well, I love clothes. And why did I find it so difficult? And hang on a minute, there isn't anything in the market that was serving me. And maybe this is a theme. Maybe it's not just me who had this particular feeling about dressing for work so in the end I think business school almost became like a giant case study for what became the fold I worked with this absolutely brilliant woman who became a true friend a friend for life called Cheryl Mainland and she and I were in the we were sort of glued at the hip for the entire two years and (laughs) And you met her there met her there on the first day you know obviously got on like a house on fire I think she was also super fascinated by being more entrepreneurial and taking this moment to explore different types of career. So we did lots of different sort of explorations. And I think some of the classes, they were literally like, okay, we'll write a little mini business plan or 
do some market research, you know, amongst the group and everybody would do like a little all survey the, the monkey and all of those little things that were sort of popping up at the time because this was in about 2009, 2010, about 10 years ago. And um, <laughs> that was really motivating. And it actually also made, I think, the beginning process of something that's quite scary, like, oh, my God, I'm going to leave my job and start a business, actually quite easy because I was in this environment where everybody is sparking off each other, being really supportive of other people's ideas. You've got all these people to ask a million things of, as well as the structure in terms of, well, this is what a business plan looks like and this is how you would approach commercial strategy or marketing. Mm. So it was really, really an amazing thing to do, actually. So I think particularly if people have got an idea, but maybe they haven't had the training that I was lucky enough to have, for example, at LEK, I think some of those business courses you can access mm. through more sort of remote learnings and things like that. And maybe some of the incubators as well. There's an, Exactly. Um, it's not research proven, but there's a phrase that always sticks to me that you're the sum of the five people that you spend the most time with. So if those five people are entrepreneurial, strategic, people that are maybe kind of open to some risk and, and kind of doing it slightly different, I think that starts to, you start to absorb some of that and start to think about how you might also take on some of those traits. So I think Maybe that's also that sort of um, osmosis thing is happening in those environments too. Absolutely. And it's also helping you do that people helping people slash networking yes. thing. So starting to go, well, OK, if this is the idea, then how would I actually even go about it? Like, where would I even get something made? And then it, it's really finding those few people who could make another introduction then they make another introduction and then somebody else. And, for example, we were mentored by a man called Mark Henderson, who was the CEO and chairman of Geeves and Hawks. Yes. And obviously had an incredible network and he was so generous with it and incredibly kind to introduce us to people so that we could ask some of those questions. But we also really sought him out. So again, it was about going, oh, we'd come across him during a, a presentation or something and we actually went to him and said that we're doing the Entrepreneurship Summer School, which is a programme that the business school runs would you consider being our, our mentor for that programme? Because we really thought that he would be able to help us, which he absolutely did, which was brilliant. But yeah, so that time was really about going, well, how would this even work? And the sort of the nugget of mm. the idea. And also, if this is the idea about, okay, how do women dress at work? How would we even approach it? Would it be bespoke? Would it be high street? Would it be, what would it be? So all of those things we sort of tested and pulled apart and then put back together again in 50 different ways. And by the last six to nine months of business school, we'd had some advice at the end of summer school that good for you guys, you kind of put all these ideas down on paper, but like don't stay up in this ivory tower. You need to go and make something to see if this is real. So the first stages, I suppose, was we we just did a little capsule and we and went out. Make we, it? we found a sampling studio to make it in yeah. London and we literally spent our own money on, okay, there's like five dresses and will yeah. anyone buy them? And then we did a networking event party to see if any of our people that we knew, i.e. working women, would buy them. And that gave us enough confidence to really sort of leap into it, I suppose. And when I look back, I mean, obviously, so much of what we did was completely cringy. I mean, you just go, oh, my God, you know. But it was all these little learning steps. And I think you've got to allow yourself that process and we weren't in an environment or we didn't feel that we were doing the kind of business where we would go out and get like millions of pounds of investment and suddenly we would just launch with the perfect product it was much more organic than that and I think it is that bit of you know see the small steps because otherwise you would say wow how would I ever build something like the white company gosh mm. that's like 
completely terrifying. And I think it would be so intimidating mm. to think about that as the end goal right at the beginning that you might never even get to stage one. Whereas I think because we were almost quite blissfully naive about it, you can just approach each little step with, okay, well, how do we even make a website? Okay, well, let's just fumble around and see if we can do it. And then there's probably a few stages or a few little turning points where you then go, right, now I'm in the place where I'm doing mm. something. I can start to be a bit more ambitious. Do you feel in the 10 years from then, I'm just I'm trying to think now, so you've started the fold and obviously it's scaling and now you've got 40 people. Do you think that your career has still been squiggly in that period or do you think, no, I'm, I was a founder then and I'm a founder now and actually it's stayed quite stable or can you see the squiggliness in as the business has gone, your your role has changed and your scope has changed? I think there's things that are similar and there's things that have definitely changed. I think that old, I suppose it's a bit of a cliche that you go from sort of doing everything to then it being about finding the talent and managing the team who are then really driving the execution of the business. So I think in that sense, it definitely changes because you go from scrapping around and doing everything mm. to really working out how you can motivate other people to buy into the vision of what you're trying to achieve. But I suppose, although that is a little bit squiggly, mm. I suppose that's the bit where it maybe in my career it's become more linear mm. because having set myself on that path and had, I would say, really quite a clear vision of where I wanted to take the fold and what it was about, it's been more of a straight line to get mm. there. I think some businesses can take huge twists and turns because maybe they've tested something and it really hasn't worked, so they've done a huge pivot and tried something else. And I think actually with the fold... The core vision of empowering and dressing that woman has stayed really quite on track. Mm. And now, funnily enough, I actually think it's one of our biggest challenges and, and opportunities is to continue that and almost not be squiggly. Because mm -hmm. I think at, at this moment, to be absolutely clear about what we want to achieve and to really keep our eye on that customer will hopefully stand us in good stead instead of trying to please everyone. It's mm. sort of almost recognising and being really clear that it's okay to be super focused on doing the best that we can mm. for that customer. And do you think this is, in terms of you and your career, is this you forever now? I think The Fold just brings together so many things that I absolutely love. I think there'll be new chapters and new directions for it, but all around that theme. And I think for me, that's the absolute love of our customer and the incredible things that these women are doing and it's just every time for example we do our fold women series mm -hmm. every time we meet one of our customers or we we do a lot of events and a lot of networking ourselves you know I just come out buzzing because they're all doing such wonderful things and I think being able to shine a spotlight on them is really really wonderful and could really keep me going forever because there'll never be a shortage of these amazing yeah. women doing yeah. these incredible things it really comes through on the website and that's one of the things that I really like about the brand is not just the product which is lovely but also the stories the events the it doesn't this empowering women it comes through it comes through in, in the things that you do and then the different podcasts and the, like you say the events it's brilliant thank you so much for kind of this part of sharing the story I think it's so inspiring and so interesting to see just how squiggly it has been you know from the things that you studied and the roles that you've done and what you've learned along the way one of the things that we do with all the people that we're sharing the squiggly career stories with and hearing from is we've got a kind of few quick questions if I can put them to you I know you shared lots there's a few more little things so when you were younger, and um, that question of what did you want to do when you grew up, what would your answer have been when you were younger? 
fashion designer, definitely. <laughs> Isn't that funny? It's kind of gone full, full circle, fashion yep. designer and CEO. It's amazing. <laughs> okay, well, that's a big tick. I, I think I wanted to be a vet and a geologist, and so I'm, I'm not ticking my boxes, and I, I have absolutely no desire There's still to. time, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm going to help many animals or dig up many rocks. Maybe buy a few. Out on the squiggly scale, so zero is, yeah, I'm just in a complete straight line for the entirety of my career, and 10 is I'm squiggling all the time. Where do you think you are on the squiggly scale looking back on your on your journey to today? I would have said a 10 for super squiggly, mm. but actually, funnily enough, having just us talked through that last bit of kind of now having quite a clear view of where I want to go, and I suppose going back to that, well, you know, I'm in my late 30s, and if I'm going to be working till I'm 90, maybe the rest of it will actually be a bit more linear. Who knows? But I would say it's pretty high. I'd give myself maybe an eight. Maybe an eight. <laughs> or maybe a nine. Yeah, I think virology to fashion is definitely a less well-trodden path. So <laughs> I, think so I think that's fair enough. <laughs> um, so a couple of people that inspired you, you mentioned Barbara and you mentioned Mark. Anybody else along this journey? Obviously, that your co-founder from the business school. Anybody else that you think they have been a real inspiration to me along the way? I think there's definitely a theme of these strong women Let's put it that way. So looking at my mum and my sister, you know, even grandparents who've been very, very self-starting, very proactive. And I would say it's really the sum of the parts of all of those people. Mm. Um, but I think aside from some of the wonderful men, including our, our chairman, who's actually been a huge support, I would say there's been a lot of strong women along the way. And I should also add my husband into that because <laughs> yeah. he's the number one fan of The Fold and <laughs> has been a strong supporter literally since day, you know, minus one of supporting what he thought I could achieve with the business, which is wonderful. And the last question for you, uh, best piece of squiggly career advice that you can share with our community? I would say the best piece of advice in terms of squiggliness would probably be to be quite self-reflective of finding the themes. Because I think it's okay to try lots of different things, but to be understanding of why you're doing it and what it is about you what is it that you're actually looking for because I suppose if it comes down for, to for example being quite a generalist or some of those things that I talked about maybe some of the squiggliness was almost about trying to find the right shape for me the right place for me to almost end up mm. but I think unless you can take that moment or those multiple moments to reflect at each stage, there's a bit of a risk that you could stay squiggly forever and then feel a bit dissatisfied. Mm. Whereas I suppose because I feel like it was super squiggly, but then I found something that I absolutely feel I could literally spend the rest of my life doing and mm. being passionate about, that it sort of led me to this path. Mm -hmm. So that would be my reflection on that. Yeah, so actually to spend some time reflecting. Lovely. Well, we're fully in support of that amazing if. And if Sarah was here, she'd be nodding even faster than me because she's so super reflective. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you sharing everything with us, all of your insights along the way and your story and being so open with it. Uh, what we will do on amazingif.com is we will put some of the links to the fold and pick out some of the really inspiring women that you've spoken to as well because that's the way that I navigate your website is reading all those things. It's brilliant. Thank you very, very much for your time, Polly. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So hopefully you enjoyed this week's stories. Um, our final Squiggly Career Stories next week will be recorded at a live event that we're doing to celebrate the release of our book and three extra special guests. Um, so we have Jack Graham, who's the founder of a company called Year Here, 
which is a social enterprise organization that just do some brilliant work so I'm really I'll be really fascinated to talk to Jack he's also a very reflective guy so I think we could definitely get lost in lots of reflective conversations so I'm really excited about that we have Shah Wasmond who is I think maybe the ultimate squiggler she's done boxing promotion she's an entrepreneur yeah very very interesting And finally, Kenya King. So Kenya is the founder of Mobo, the kind of Black Music Awards. And she, her story of kind of resilience and adversity, which actually she wears very lightly, is really interesting. And she has achieved an incredible amount. I actually went on to, I was doing my research today, I went onto Wikipedia to see all of her achievements and it's such a long list. You know, and it's like 20 bullet points long. She's so lovely and modest as well. Yeah, right, that's what, yeah, Yeah. she does. She just has that kind of humility. But I think we all learn a lot from kind of talking to them. And we also just wanted to say thank you so much to everybody who has bought the book. We appreciate we've been talking about it a lot on Instagram, on LinkedIn, everywhere that we are. And we do really appreciate your support. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate, review and subscribe. Thanks very much for listening. Bye for now. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.